This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to join me on today. Those of you that are listening for the first time, welcome. Glad to have you. And I'm just going to give a quick introduction before we get into the topic for today. For those of you listening for the first time, just to let you know what the world of UX podcast is about. We're, we're used to going to a talk at, a, at an event, uh, going to a meetup, having conversations with some of our peers. We're used to people pretty much just talking about the how-tos associated with UX. This this podcast is an extension of another one of my activities in the world of UX, uh, which is, it's called UX Uncensored. And what we mean by that is that it is completely, we are no holds barred. We don't hold anything back. We don't tickle ears. We don't coddle anyone. We're, we're not here to, to make people feel good. We're not riddled with, and nor do we give presentations that, that are full of toxic positivity. We want to let you know everything. If it's something that you need to do to help you grow, we'll talk about that. If there's something that you need to know and understand with regard to methodologies and techniques, we'll talk about that. But we'll also talk about some of the challenges. We'll talk about some of the pitfalls. We'll talk about some of the, the we'll talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly associated with UX. So that's what we mean by world of UX. No holds barred. No topic is off limits. Nothing is taboo. We will cover any and everything. That's what I do. I have a sense of indebtedness because the discipline has been good to me. I want to help people as much as I can in every way that I can. Everybody doesn't always necessarily get it. Everybody doesn't necessarily understand it. Everybody doesn't necessarily appreciate it. I'm not here to be appreciated. I'm not here to be understood. I'm just here to share what I know. And and I hope that someone will take it to heart and that it will help them to grow and mature and be the user experience professional that they can be. I'm all about helping people to be all that they can. So that that's where I'm coming from. That's what I'm about. And uh, I won't get into my, my background, things like that. You can, you can find information about my, my background on LinkedIn and other places like that. But I just want to give everybody a little bit of a welcome to let you know what's going on. So it will be a bit different than what you might expect in listening to others. Uh, we'll, we'll, we will talk about methods and things of that nature, but there are some other things that we need to talk about as well. And so one of the reasons I give that, that intro today is because we've got a special topic again today we had an interview last week with dr casey mccardle of michigan state university we're going to have more interviews in the not too distant future we're going to spread them out a bit but we will have them and and we want to we want people to be able to hear what other people have to say about the discipline and i've got to say this here we want voices you need to hear people who have things of value to say, because there's a lot of noise out there in the world of UX today. There's a lot of, there are a lot of people are talking and they really don't have any, there's no substantiation behind what they're saying. Nothing's been vetted out. It's not accurate. Uh, 
people are playing games with terminology. They are reinventing things that already exist. And if you're new and you're zealous, you're not thinking about trying to 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 understand what's legitimate and what's not. I did the same thing when I first came in. I didn't have anybody to do what I'm doing. So you don't have anybody saying, ah, well, that's not really true. And here's the 15 reasons why. That's a part of critical thinking. That academic mindset is willing to take on and examine anything that you're presented with. And you want to make sure that things are reliable. You want to make sure that things are trustworthy. So we're here to encourage people even about that. And that's another one of the benefits that we offer to the user experience community to offer up that critical thinking and go back and you don't have to receive it at face value. Go back and look at it. But we need to to do this today because there is so much noise. There are people that are saying all types of things and they're not really accurate. They're, they're, they're not helpful and they will create a problem for you, your team, your organization, your users, and, and we don't want to do that. There's a, a sense of ethics associated with user experience work and that ethics requires that we know what we're talking about. I, I have a rule. Know what you're talking about then you open your mouth. Don't open your mouth until you know. If you cannot substantiate, don't say it. And that, that's an unwritten rule associated with UX. As before we get into the first question today, that we don't just give recommendations as user experience professionals. We're also on the ready to explain exactly why we are making that recommendation. I don't care if you're just changing a little bit of an interface, you're changing buttons in an interface, you're changing the way that the navigation is structured. You should be able to explain why. There should be some data, some heuristics that that uh, stand behind what it is, this recommendation that you are presenting. I think we should change this, and here are the reasons why. This is what the data says. We don't just make changes for the sake of making changes. UX is art and it's science. It's not just art. It's art and it's science. And as soon as you strip the science from what we do, technically, it's no longer user experience. If you're not talking to users or making decisions based on data that is obtained from interacting with users, it's no longer user experience. So let's let's uh, take those things to heart today. And as stated, we've got a, a special session today. I If we do not finish these questions, because they're pretty, a couple of them are pretty, I was sort of surprised when I, when I got the questions because you don't expect them to be something that's very, uh, very, something you can delve into, something that has a lot of depth to it. But when I prepared to air this show, to record, to me, uh, these things, I mean, these things could be pretty deep. So I want to make sure that I answer them in a way that that's useful. I'm going to give you the basic information and then you can take what I'm saying. You can glean the the practical aspects out of what I'm saying. I will say a few practical things, but uh, reminded of a social media post that I put out today that you don't have to tell somebody what to do. You only have to tell children what to do. People who are mature, you can hear anything and you can walk away with a practical perspective, whether they tell you exactly what to do or not. So we're going to challenge you there today. And if you don't know, just hang on, 
in time, you will gain an understanding of it the more you apply critical thinking to it. So I want to lay a foundation of that. And here we go with our special UX Q&A session, our first one, actually, that we've ever done. So question number one, and I'm not going to give anyone's names. I don't know if anybody wanted to be uh, identified. So we just uh, a thanks and a shout out to those of you who gave me these questions today. And let's dive in. Question number one says, how do you measure the impact of generative research and calculate its return on investment or its ROI? So to answer this question, the first thing we need to do is make sure we're level set because everybody doesn't know what generative research is. Well, if you're used to hearing about formative research and summative research with formative research, I actually just talked about this on one of the episodes recently where we were diving into research. Formative research is the research that you do before the project starts or early on because you're forming your direction, you're forming your strategy. So formative research is generative research, basically. So uh, most people will refer to it as formative research, but if somebody calls it generative, now you know that they're talking about formative research. So what are some of the types of formative research. What are the types of things that you could do early on in a project that would qualify as formative research? So we need to understand that. Now that we know what formative research is, let's identify five different types. Well, six really. One, a heuristic analysis. If you are starting off with a design, even if it's a brand new design, you can design from a heuristic perspective. If you're doing a a a redesign, then you want to acknowledge, you want to identify what your current state of the design is. And a lot of times you can start off by doing, performing a heuristic analysis, and that will help you to form your strategy so you know how to proceed based on the findings. Type number two, or approach number two, you can perform a competitive analysis. And when you look at the competitors, what they're doing, understanding where they stand in the uh, in the current landscape of things that will contribute to your the strategy that you're trying to put together for the initiative. You can conduct ethnographic studies. Maybe you're in a situation where you can watch people, depending upon what, what it is you're designing, you can watch people work in their own environment, observe them, so you can understand what's going well for them, what are the challenges, what are the pain points? Where are the opportunities to actually make this better? What, where, what, can you, what can you do that could make things easier? And one thing I need to mention about ethnographic studies is that when you're performing an ethnographic study, you're just observing. You are not really. You might engage with the, with the participants, with the people you're observing from time to time, but it should be at a bare minimum. And in best case scenario, you are not engaging with the people you're observing at all. You are simply watching them work. You may have to ask a couple of questions because you're trying to clarify some things. You're trying to make sure that you understand what's going on, but you're not really engaging with them, but you're, you're watching, you're understanding, and that data will help you to form strategies and to form design direction to make good sound design direction decisions. The next example is contextual analysis. Now, this is 
akin to an ethnographic study where you're watching people work, except you are engaging. You're probably right over this person's shoulder and you're sitting there and you're watching every single solitary thing that they're doing. And you're asking a lot of questions. You, you, you may have some, some things that you have identified beforehand that you want to look at. And so you're going to ask the person that you're sitting with, maybe you're shadowing somebody. And so you can ask them all types of questions. There's a lot of dialogue, but so again, ethnography, watching silent, contextual analysis, watching and engaging, but still it's a great way. Both are observational by the way. And this is, this helps you again to form strategies and the form design direction. And then number five, and this one is a sort of split in a sense, AB testing. And I, I've just reached a point where I can't mention AB testing without mentioning multivariate testing. So in AB testing, you are actually showing people two versions of the design, but they only vary in one point. That's the one thing a lot of people get wrong about AB testing. They want to change a whole bunch of things and then say that they're doing A-B testing. On one hand, you are, but technically you're not if you're if you're making a ton of changes. So you want to be careful of that. Uh, and some people will teach that, well, if you got two, it's A-B. Uh, you might as well throw another one in there and call it multivariate. Multivariate testing is where you have more than two examples that you're testing, more than two versions of the design, but it varies across multiple points. But AB, maybe you're just, you're observing things in the navigation and you have one set of navigation in, in A and a different set of navigation in B, that's AB testing. Everything else is identical because you're just trying to make a decision about one aspect of the design. It is critical that we understand that. And in this day and time where you have a lot of people that are getting into research and they're not really understanding they don't really know a lot about research and because a lot of people tend to sort of ab testing is one of the quick things that a lot of people just throw out there and they don't really understand it and what they end up doing what the people end up doing is not really ab testing so we want to make sure that we understand that today that uh, ab testing it only varies at one part of the design multivariate is, is different across several aspects of the design and it could really entail looking at more than two two designs as a whole. So let, let's understand those today. But the bottom line here, based on what we're discussing, is that when you conduct the A-B or the multivariate testing, it's going to give you some really sound data that helps you to form, solidify, finalize your design direction. So um, there, there you are with your types of formative or generative research. But the end of the question says, is really an A and a B to the question. How do you measure the impact of that research? So you're doing heuristic analyses, you you conduct a competitive analysis, you you have some ethnographic studies that you that you perform, you engage via contextual analysis, you you have your A B and your multivariate testing. Okay, so you did it. Now you've got some data. Now what? How do you, because th this is really huge when, uh, when you think about it, and it's something that 
because of the siege that I talk about that UX is under. One of the problems associated with the siege that UX has been under since about 2012, 2013, is where you have this mass rush of people that are landing UX positions and nothing against them in general. We just want people to be good at what they do. And, and you're going to understand why I talk about this a little bit more in a minute. When people are not skilled at UX, or maybe they know how to perform some of the tasks, but they don't understand the sphere. They don't, they don't understand the breadth of UX operation. And so what happens is now they engage in the work, but they don't really shepherd the work. In other words, they, they do the work, but they don't know how to communicate to leadership with regard to impact. So let's say you just go and do some A-B testing and you're able to identify which one of the designs is going to perform better. No question. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Version B definitely blew away version A. So let's go with version B. Let's implement that. So the person knows how to do an A-B test, at least in general. They conduct the test. They roll everything out. They get their data. Everything is clear. And then they just, okay, well, we're done with that. On to the next scenario, on to the next task, on to the next project. And they don't, they don't record any case studies. That's one of the ways that you can help to show the impact. There, there's no case study. There's no documentation. There's no UX intranet site. There's, there, there's no lessons learned where people are talking about things to a great extent. So consequently, you did the work, but because you don't understand the sphere, S-P-H-E-R-E, the sphere of UX operation, you don't understand that it's not just about the work. It's about the relationships. It's about managing UX maturity. It's about striving to make sure that all of the stakeholders that you're managing each one of these individuals as well as getting the work done so that when everything is set, everybody knows exactly what the UX team did. They know exactly how much you impacted things and everybody can walk away with the same mindset and placing the the appropriate level of value on the work that was done. Because if you do the work and nobody understands, nobody gets the message on how to ascribe value to the work that was done and they don't understand how much work was done, that is going to come back and haunt your team to the nth degree. Nobody wants to experience that. So here are a few ways, some things that I'm gonna give you to help out with your ROI evaluation. Told you there were going to be some practical things in the midst of everything else. <laughs> so so here we go. Somebody brought that up uh, actually some time ago and it came up recently. So it's, it, it's on my mind, the issue of practicality. You, practicality is based on the here. It's not based on the person who's who's giving things out. I just got to throw that out there. So let, let's, let's level set there, but let's get on with this. So here you are. How do we help... What strategies can we use so that we can optimize and communicate and calculate the return on investment for the work that we have done? Well, number one, KPIs. There should, KPI is an acronym. It stands for Key Performance Indicators. What changes are we looking for 
What can we identify that we can say, if we do this, this is considered a success. If we reach this particular level, if, if we can increase page time or, or, or conversions, uh, what, 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 what can we use as a measuring tool that we can say, okay, before the UX team worked on this, we performed at, at one particular level, but after we implemented all of the changes that were agreed upon with the team, we actually tripled our profits on that page and we eliminated abandonment by 70%. I've been involved in projects before that did that. And that was one of the ways that we knew that UX was successful because we pulled out the KPIs and we measured the KPIs before UX and we measured the KPIs after UX. You ever see all these these little illustrations on social media where somebody will say before UX and after UX and all they show you is a visual? Those people are misleading you about UX. You don't know that UX has done better until you have measurement and you're not measuring it just by flashing a couple of visuals at people. Those people are oversimplifying user experience. They're creating problems for all of us. So there's a little quick nugget for some folks today. Next, you want to conduct additional research. So such as remote usability testing. Now, this is something that it can be formative, remote usability testing, but it's usually done somewhat from a summative perspective because the summative measurements, summative research can help to prove out the ROI associated with your formative research. So let's keep that in mind as well. But you can conduct remote usability testing to show that the changes that we are that we are considering implementing the the time to task was reduced. The efficiency in the task flow was was better. People uh, people expressed greater satisfaction when we conducted that research. The abandonment issues we mentioned that a moment ago uh, reduce abandon abandonment by 60, 70 percent. Any business would absolutely love that. The the and then lastly the the performance before sort of touched on it but a little bit of overlap and to some extent not but the performance before the changes and the performance after the changes there is a market difference between the two and here is the the big bang for your buck on this when you begin to examine these types of things the impact that your ux initiatives Uh, happen to be making, it enables you to do what we call speaking exec. In other words, you begin to speak in the language of of your internal clients, of your stakeholders, of your C-level people. You're not just slinging UX buzzwords. Now you're talking from a perspective that these people can understand and they're going to end up being your biggest champions. That's going to help drive your maturity level in your organization is going to help people understand the value of UX It's going to help people champion for you. And you are just going to drive some tremendous wins for your business today. So measuring the impact of your formative, your generative research, and then calculating the ROI. See, this is more than just doing some wireframes and some prototypes and having a design sprint, isn't it? This is what UX is about. You can't just do the work. We have to till the ground, so to speak, 
around the, the, the work. I use some of a, of a, a farming metaphor here. We've got to till the ground. We've got to make sure that we're massaging those relationships and we're doing what we need to do so that we're communicating effectively, so we're helping ascribe value, and we're managing what we're doing from a UX perspective as a business instead of just getting caught up in the work. It's not enough to do that, folks. So that is question number one. And I I thought this might take a little bit longer time and I don't want to rush through these and I want to give you quality answers, but this is what we need to do today. We'll get to the other questions later. And if I receive some more questions then we'll extend it, but I hope you got something out of this folks. We are out of time for today. So signing off here, this is your host of the world of UX. This is Darren Hood. Happy UXing everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.